This morning, I want you to think about this. What is it to truly be human? What is it to truly be human? And maybe a a good follow-up question is how much value does a human life have? What is it to be truly human and how much value does a human life? What makes a human valuable? What makes a human a human? These are super important questions, really important questions. Uh, people, everybody has, a, everybody has a view about this question. Everybody has a, a worldview. Everyone understands what they think the answer to this was. And if you sat down, you surveyed 100 people, you'd get, you'd get 100 answers. It's very important as Christians that we understand the answer to this question. Unfortunately, every, uh, every year, I looked at some statistics this morning, uh, every year, one million people in this world answer the question of what it is to be human and how much value does a human life have by ending their life. One million people in the world every year answer this question by ending their human life, which is the ultimate statement of my life has no value. There's no value, I'm going to end it. Every year, 73 million people or I should say 73 million times a year, someone ends a human life inside of the womb. 73 million times every year, a life is ended within the womb, which is a statement about humanity. It's a statement about what makes a human a human. Every year, 500,000, half a million uh, homicides take place in this world, which is a statement about what someone thinks about the value of a human life. When you end someone else's human life, it says something about what you think about the value of it. It's important that we ask this, this question. What is it to be truly human? Well, what does the world say? The world answers this. First of all, uh, Emil Brunner says, the most powerful of all spiritual forces is man's view of himself. The way in which he understands his nature and his destiny. Indeed, it is the one force which determines all others which influence human life. So my point is here that it's extremely important that we understand and that you understand what makes you a human and why that's important. Now, what is the world's answer to what it is to be human? Doing some research this week, I literally just Googled uh, what it is to be a human, um, like you do, you know, and uh, immediately actually found that BBC um, had made a documentary series called What It Is to Be Human. Now, of course, it's coming from a naturalistic, evolutionary, sort of uh, secular humanist worldview, um, but they made a series, and, and I, I was reading a little blurb um, by, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy that wrote this, the, the, the head of BBC documentaries, a little blurb that he wrote um, trying to get people excited about watching this documentary series, and I wanted to share it with you, because I think it says a lot, actually, about what the world is telling you it is to be a human, and how that differs from the Christian worldview. Here's what he says. What does it mean to be human? Why do we behave the way we do? How do we live better? How did we get to now? What is our future? Let's start with the facts, he says. Now, I, I think that's comical because everything he's about to say is not a fact. But he, he, in his worldview, everything he's about to say is a fact, okay? Let's start with the facts. We are one species of primate that emerged from the dry savannas of East Africa just over 100 thousand years ago and began a migration that continues to today. Did you know that's a fact? I didn't know that was a fact. It's crazy. We weren't the strongest animal, but we had an unusually large brain and held ourselves upright, giving us a high vantage to scan the distant horizon for enemies and the freedom to use our hands for other purposes. So what makes you special over every other animal, because you're just an animal, uh, is that you were a little taller and you had a little bit of a bigger brain. What a miracle. 
I'm so glad that we were half an inch taller than the other animals. Over time, we began to fashion tools. These were primitive but could tear through skin and muscle. We might have continued our short life of hunting, savagery, and brutishness right through to today. But for one important development, language. Other animals could communicate, but we evolved astonishing vocal ability, able to create sounds that represented not just objects, but also concepts. Okay, so evolution in language somehow miraculously gives us the ability to create concepts, to go from being an animal to being someone that can create concepts just simply because of language. That seems like kind of a big leap, doesn't it? Uh, where was I? Uh, other animals could communicate, but we evolved astonishing vocal ability, able to create sounds that represented or not just objects, but also concepts. We learned how to express ideas. We could speak of danger, hope, and love. Whoa, where did love come from? He just kind of pops that in there like it just, it's, it's, it's just a presupposition. But if you're an animal, where did this idea of communicating love come from? Well, we have to answer that. We became storytellers, able to weave together common narratives about who we are and how we should live. From this point on, the pace of change was electrifying. 12,000 years ago, we learned how to domesticate plants and other animals for food and pot. And we are able to settle in one place. It's Grant's Pass. Come on. We became a social animal. What are you? You're a social animal. What is it to be human? To be a social animal. You're an animal that can talk. Congratulations. Building complex communities, oh, wow, uh, that become kingdoms, learning to trade with each other using a concept called money. By 2,500 years ago, a small group of humans in southern Europe in the Middle East started to ask big questions about who we were. What is the best way to live? What is a good life? What does it mean to be human? How do we respond to these questions? Is how we built our civilization, art, and philosophy. 500 years ago, the scientific, he just explained, attempted to explain all of why we have art and philosophy as humans simply because of language and time. That doesn't make any sense. Allowing us, us to harness the resources of our planet to live longer and more productive lives. Our story is remarkable, the greatest story ever told. And while it is the story of astonishing development for our species, it is also the tale of billions of individual lives echoing down the millennia, all of them full of hope and promise. Hope and promise in what? Fear and disappointment. As we discover more about reality, we continue our ascent into insignificance. Oh, that sounds so encouraging. Aren't you glad that you were born so that you could continue your ascent into insignificance? Becoming a vanishing footnote in space and time, a speck of dust in the vastness of the universe. But to be human is to be at the center of our own universe, to experience life in all its colors and all its potential. This is what we want to celebrate with being human, which is the series. The awe of being alive, the thrill of discovering what it means to be us, the greatest wonder in the world. Okay, now here's my question. First of all, here, what is he saying? He, he's saying his, the answer, the worldly answer of what it is to be a human is this. Uh, first of all, to be a social animal. Okay, you're an animal that can talk. Uh, a vanishing footnote in space and time. A speck of dust in the vastness of the universe. To be human is to be at the center of your own universe. Oh. To experience life in all its colors and all its potential. The great, you are the greatest wonder in the world you ape that stood a little taller and had a little bit of a bigger brain. You are a miracle. Congratulations. A social animal, a vanishing footnote. Okay, here's my question. Is this answer truly factual, satisfying to your human soul, logical, or even productive for a thriving in human society? Or thriving human society? I would say no to all those. It's not logical. It's not factual. It's definitely not productive if you want a society of people that actually find any kind of self-worth. 
or are thriving in any way. Uh, people would like to argue that um, the way we got to where we got as humans is because of scientific discovery. It's actually not true. We got to where we got as humans in the last uh, few hundred years because of a Christian worldview. And, and we'll, we'll talk more about that in a minute. minute. This is what the world is offering. The world is offering a worldview that says you are basically an animal that learned how to talk. You are basically just, you just happen to have a little bit of a larger brain. You happen to be a little bit taller. And therefore, boom, you have human life in all of its intricacies. Okay, that is not the answer that our deep soul as humans longs for. It just simply is not. Okay, there, there has to be more. That's what the world says. But what does God say about what it is to be human? What does God say about what makes a human valuable? I'm glad that you're asking me that because that's, that's what we're going to look at. That's what our text tells us this morning. So open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 24. The Bible is very clear about what makes a human a human. It's very clear about what makes a human valuable and distinct, okay? Verse 24, it's the sixth day of creation here. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Note that word. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their what? Kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their what? Kinds. And livestock according to their? And everything that creeps on the ground according to its? Do you think that's maybe important a little bit? The, 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 the whole idea of something being created according to its kind. I think it is. He says it over and over and over again. And God saw that it was good. Now, that was the creation of the animal kingdom. That was the creation of all of the land-dwelling animal-created life. But then in verse 26, we get an entirely new thing. Then God said, let us make man according to its kind. Oh, wait. Does it say that? You would expect it to say that, wouldn't you? Because that's what he said about everything else. But that's not what it says. Then God said, let us make man in what? Our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay, here's the difference that Genesis absolutely makes clear. God creates created life. He creates animals and, and plant life and birds and fish in all of these different areas. He creates them according to their own kind. They are a unique thing that he creates um, and it's a, sort of a new category. He creates these things in order to express his creative ability, his power, his sovereignty. But when he gets to humankind, when he gets to mankind, it's an entirely different thing. He doesn't say according to its own likeness. He says according to his image. He creates humankind not to reveal his creative ability, but to, exp listen, but to express his personality. He creates humankind to reflect, literally reflect who he is as a person. The word image there in the Hebrew is selem, T-S-E-L-I-M, or actually T-S-E-L-E-M, pardon me. It literally means figure or stature or statue. So it's the same word used in the Old Testament when it talks about idolatry. God said, don't make an image. Don't make anything that represents me. But what do we find God doing right here? He makes an image. He makes an image to reflect himself. And likeness is really a synonym, 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 
synonym. 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 I'm just going to slow down. Uh, likeness and image are the same word. It's communicating the same idea, and that is that God is literally creating something to image himself. He's creating something to reflect himself. It's the pinnacle of the created order, the pinnacle of the created life. Everything crescendos at the creation of the human species. It is not an animal. It's not like an animal. It's not connected to an animal. The only thing that's like an animal about a human is the fact that we have a lot of the same organs. We have a lot of the same physicality. But there is something about humanity that is far different far more distinct. And what it is is that you were created for what? You were created to image him. Christians don't have a hard time answering the question, what is it to be human? We don't have a hard time answering the question, what makes you valuable as a human? The answer is very simple. You bear the image of God. You bear the image of God. That's what makes you valuable. God created you to image himself. In what way do we image God is the question, though. In what way do we image God? Let me give you a few categories that the Bible tells us that we image God. First, we image God in our personality, or we could say we image his personal nature. The primary way that you image God isn't necessarily in your physicality. It's, the point isn't that God says, you know, I really want everyone to know that I have fingers and toes, and so I'm going to create a human with fingers and toes. That's not the point. God creates someone that has a personality. That's what makes a human a human. It's not our physicality, it's our personality. That's what makes us human beings. And God creates humans to reflect his personality. You know, you wouldn't know hardly anything about God if you didn't know a human being. Almost everything, in fact, that you know about God, you know because of a human being. You learn about God through human beings because that's how God created, uh, or that's how God decided for him to be revealed, is through human beings. So let, let me give you some Examples, what are our human attributes? What are the things that make us human? Uh, first of all, we have this ability to reason. Some of us do. Um, we have this ability to reason. My five-year-old isn't quite got there yet. Um, he's working on it. This ability to reason. In other words, like thinking beyond the immediate, thinking beyond the immediate consequence. We have this ability to reason and think rationally. This is a human distinctive. Why do we have this distinctive? Because God thinks rationally. God has reason. He reasons within the Godhead in the same way he created humans to reflect that reasonableness. We image his personality in morality. You know, this is one thing that the naturalistic evolutionary worldview just simply can't answer. Why do I know what's right and wrong? Or at least have some idea of what's right and wrong. I mean, you go into the deepest jungles and you find people, uh, you know, and, and they, they do wrong things, but they seem to have this universal code to some degree of humanity that knows that certain things are simply wrong. Every human knows it. It's the law written on our hearts. Why? Because we were created in the image of a God that has uh, a moral center. He is perfect and righteous and holy. And so we image that through our morality. Similarly, we image his personality through our conscience, Conscience is uh, what you feel after you do something wrong. Morality is knowing that you're about to do something wrong. Conscience is when you go, I just did something wrong. Why do we have a conscience? Well, we have a conscience because you uh, were created by someone that is right and wrong, and he created you to image right and wrong, and so you know when you're doing something wrong. It's, 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 it's built within you to go, you know, I'm not imaging God correctly. When you sin, you know what you're doing? You're, you're disimaging God. You're distorting his image. You're distorting, that's why sin's so serious. 
That's why we can't continue in sin. If we're his, okay? Uh, we image him in our self-awareness as humans. Uh, unlike animals, we have this ability to ask questions like, why are we human? Do you think your dog sits there licking itself, thinking, why am I a dog? Like, wh- why? Why am I a dog? What, 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 you think a squirrel, you know, running across, you know, the back of your thing? You say, well, I wonder what it is to be a squirrel truly. I wonder why I have you know, value as a squirrel. Like, they're not thinking these things, okay? This is what makes us human. Humans ask these weird questions like, why am I human? And what does that mean? And uh, the, the deeper things. We're self-aware. We ask questions about origin, identity, and destiny. In other words, where we came from, why we're here, and where we're going. It's built into us to ask those questions. We image God in our language. We have this ability to communicate. Why? Because God is a communicator. Did you know that? He's a communicator. He, he has communicated for all of eternity. Even before creation, before time, he communicated within the Godhead. God speaks. He speaks to reveal his mind. That's how we know who he is. He speaks. And because he speaks, he made us to speak. Okay? That's, that's why we speak, because he speaks. We have a will. In other words, we have non-animalistic desires. Okay? We have things that, that we desire in our deeper parts, in our soul, the deeper parts of our being. That's, that's a human thing. Why? Because God has those. God has deep desires. We have emotion. Emotion makes us human. Why do we have emotion? Because God has emotion. Did you know that? God has emotion. He's an emotional God. He feels sadness. He feels frustration. He feels anger. He feels joy. He feels all those things. It wasn't just Jesus and his humanity that felt emotion. God feels emotion. And he created you to image his emotion. You know, emotion's not a bad thing. Emotion, when used rightly, is a really good thing. And lastly, and I think most interestingly, abstract thinking. This is, this is something that humans do, isn't it? We, we have the ability to create art and, and to think of something that wasn't already there. Check, check. Okay. Abstract thinking is, is art. It's the, it's the ability to think of something um, creative. Okay. Animals don't have that. Where do we have that? It's a human instinct. It's a human ability to create and think creatively. And that's one of the things that the naturalistic world, you simply can't answer. It's like music. You know, what is music? And, and how does music serve anything in the evolutionary process? How does enjoying a Mozart have anything to do with me becoming a better uh, ape? I mean, what, what, is, what does that do? And, and who created music? Where does it come from? Why is it when you put certain notes together, they sound pleasant, and when you put other notes together, they don't? Where does that come from? Uh, well, we are created in the image of a God that is artistic. And when he created the cosmos, he did it in an artistic way. He used multiple colors, multiple textures. He organized it. He's an artist. Okay, so you can see in these particular ways, and probably more ways than these, we image God. Okay, we reflect him. That was the purpose. But it's not just in our personal nature that we reflect him. We also reflect him in our relational nature. Okay, the fact that as humans, we know we need relationship. Where does that come from? It's certainly not an evolutionary process. 
It comes from the fact that we serve a relational God. God is a community. He's been a community since before time. God, the Trinity. And look at the passage here in Genesis 1. What does it say specifically? It says, let who? Us make man in our image after our likeness. There's a plurality happening here. Now, some liberal scholars would like to explain that away and say, oh, he's talking to the angels. No, he's not. Because he didn't make man in the image of angels. He made man in the image of God. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the Godhead. He's talking to the Trinity. He's created man as a community. That's why instantly it's not good for man to be alone. He instantly creates a wife for her, and then subsequently they have children. It's a Trinitarian picture. You were created to be in community. That's why you're here. That's why you got out of bed this morning and came here, because you know you need to be with people, because you're created to image a God that is a community. Okay, listen to me. You might even write this down. We are created by a lover to love and be loved. God is the origin of love. He's the source of love. He's the beginning of love. He is love. Who has he been loving? He's been loving the Trinity itself. And he created you for the purpose of loving you and for you to love him. Therefore, without love, your life makes no sense. So that's why even worldly people, they say, like, I think love is the only thing that's true in the world. I go, yes. But the question is, who is and what is that ultimate source of love? Okay. Love is how we were created. We were created what we were, what we were created for because we were created by a God that is loving. And lastly, we image him, uh, we image his ruling nature. So his personal nature, his relational nature, and we image his ruling nature. What this means is that one of the ways we reflect him is when we manage things well, when we cultivate things well, when we create uh, infrastructure, Okay, um, infrastructure is godly. You know what? God put Adam in the garden immediately. What's the first thing he tells him to do? He says, uh, have dominion, okay, is the word I'm looking for. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens. God creates man to be his vice regent, his co-regent. He creates man to manage. And it reflects God's nature because God is a manager. God created the earth to run it. And he makes man in his image to run the earth. Okay, so when we're imaging him most fully is when we are functioning in our attributes as humans, when we are in relationship, and when we are managing or stewarding the things that he's created for us to do. Isn't that funny? I mean, these are the things, the basic tenets of what it is to be a thriving human being. Responsibility, relationship, and personality. Understanding who you are and why you do it. These are things God made us to do. This is what makes us human. Okay? But this isn't all that makes us human. The problem with those things is you could say, well, what if somebody didn't do those things? What if somebody couldn't do those things? What if someone was in a coma? Then would they cease to be human? Okay, well, there's one more piece I need you to see here. Let me back up. There's one more piece I need you to see here, and that's actually over in chapter 2, verse 7. It says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust, which is earth, right, from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, that's important to note when we're talking about what a human is. Not only is a human uh, the reflection of God, the imago Dei is the theological term for it, but a human is also one part earth and one part God's spirit. You know what that's called? It's called a soul. That's what makes you human. You have a soul, not just that you have a body. If I take your body uh, away from you, you still have a soul. When you die, your body turns to what? Dust, and your soul is 
out of this world. It's beyond this world. Your soul is the unseen element of you. So when God creates a human, he takes earth and he takes something from heaven, his spirit, and he puts the two together. Okay? What that means is that God created humanity, listen to me, as a bridge, as an interface between his realm, his dimension, and our dimension. That was the purpose of man. God created man for the purpose of ruling and for being an interface between creation and creator, between creation, the created realm and the immaterial realm. Okay? That's what gives humans life. That's what makes humans valuable. Okay? It's important that we understand that. How should this change the way that we think about human value? How should this change the way that we think about human value? Christians have always, I'm going to read this, Christians see humans as intrinsically and universally valuable regardless of productivity. This is why this is so important. If you think of a human as being valuable only based on what they can do, then you've got all kinds of societal problems. Christians don't do that. We don't say, here's what makes you valuable. You're valuable because you did something or you might do something or you have potential to do something. What makes you valuable from a Christian perspective is that you bear God's image. That's it. That's what makes you valuable. You bear God's image. You don't need to do anything else to be worth saving, worth keeping. You just simply need to be. That's the Christian perspective. And that's why we value largely human life in our culture. You know why? It's not because of an evolutionary or naturalistic worldview. We value human life in our culture because we have a Christian foundation. That's where that came from. And that's why Christians abhor and are against and are fighting for the unborn. Because the unborn, we see them as having value. Not because of anything they've done, but because of simply the fact that they are little image bearers. They are bearers of the image of God. Ben Shapiro, he has this uh, this argument that he does on, 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 on uh, YouTube. He goes into college campuses and things. And, uh, and his, whole, his whole thing is, um, what makes you human? People say, well, what makes you human is that you're conscious. So, okay. So if you go into a coma, he says, can I stab you? And of course they go, well, no, you can't stab me if I go into a coma. Well, why not? You're not conscious. You're not aware of what's going on around you. Well, because I'm going to wake up, right? Because I'm going to wake up, I, I, you, don't, you don't stab me. Okay, okay. So you're human. What makes you human, what makes you valuable, it's not just your consciousness, the fact that you might have consciousness. Just, okay, well, let's say you were in a coma for, I don't know, just throw a number out there, nine months. Maybe, maybe you weren't able to speak. Maybe you weren't conscious. Maybe you were in a, in a place where you weren't able to interact, but, but you were there for nine months. Would, it, would you let, but, but, but you knew that that person was going to wake up after nine months. Would you spare? Well, of course. Okay, does that sound familiar? Sounds like an abortion, right? The reason that we value human life, even if it can't speak, even if it can't produce anything, even if it can't give anything to culture, the reason we value human life is because it bears God's image, regardless of whether it does anything for us. Let me give you a couple examples of this. Imagine I had a picture uh, of something that meant a lot to me. It was a picture of my, you know, me and my grandfather or something, just this priceless. You guys remember real pictures? Remember those things? They're kind of like on paper with like a gloss. It's the craziest thing. You can't swipe through them, but they're, um, so imagine I had a picture and, it, and the picture represented something very valuable. Now that picture is priceless. Why? Because it represents a valuable moment in my life. And the picture is designed to remind me of that life, right? Let's say my two-year-old comes along, my three-year-old, she's three now, um, 
And she picks up that picture, and she doesn't know that it's valuable. She just sees it as a piece of paper. And so what does she do? She cuts it into a million pieces because that's what you do when you're three and you got scissors in your hand. She cuts it into a million pieces. Now, the value of that has been lost for me. But the reason she didn't know it was valuable is because she didn't understand what it represented. Okay, the same is true of the Imago Dei. The same is true of the image bearing that we do of God. Okay, we bear God's image. What makes us valuable is not our flesh and blood. What makes us valuable is the fact that we represent a greater reality. We represent God's nature himself. Another example would be if someone wrote a check for $100,000 and left it laying out on a table. And again, the three-year-old comes up and sees it and goes, oh, it's a piece of paper. I'll chop it into a million pieces. That value is not in the paper itself. The value is in the reality, the greater reality that it represents. Human life is valuable purely because it reflects a greater ultimate reality, which is God and his nature. Human value is intrinsic regardless of whether that, val- that person can do anything to validate it. My wife and I were watching uh, this documentary with, about Michelle Obama, and, uh, and Michelle Obama's fine. I'm not trying to criticize her. It was just, it was enlightening for me, the worldview that she's selling, that she's propagating. Uh, she has this massive following, right, with, with lots of young African-American women, and they come to her book, um, signings and just, just hundreds of thousands of them come. And it was showing in the uh, documentary how she interacts with them. And she's kind of got this rags to riches story. You know, she came from Chicago um, and uh, she, she went to this, like Princeton or something, of course, marries Barack and then she becomes the first lady and now she's this world-renowned figure. And, uh, and she's very much got that, like, if you just believe in yourself, you know, you can, you can do it. So these young women come up to her and they say, what do you do when everyone undervalues you? What do you do when no one thinks that you're something? And you know what she says? It sounds really great. She says, you got to get out there and prove to them who you really are. You got to get out there and prove to them that you're really something, that you're really valuable. Now, that, that, that sounds inspiring, but it's damaging. Because what it's telling these young women is that your value is in what you accomplish, not in whose image you bear. Your value is something you need to go out and prove, not something that is intrinsically yours regardless of whether you see it or not. The Christian worldview says, no, you don't have to prove your worth as a human. Your worth is intrinsically yours as a human because you bear God's image. Not, you got to go out and prove that you're something. I, I literally think that this is one of the reasons we're seeing such high suicide rates right now. Because people are feeling that it is up to them to prove that they deserve to be alive. And if they don't feel it, then they have no value. We must value differently than that. We have to. So what happens when we don't see the Imago Dei? When we don't see the Imago Dei, when we don't see the value of the image of God, we devalue human life naturally. We devalue. I want to read something for you that really broke my heart this week. In 2004, Denmark became one of the first countries in the world to offer prenatal Down syndrome screening to every pregnant woman, regardless of age or other risk factors. Nearly all expecting mothers choose to take the test. Of those who get a Down syndrome diagnosis, more than 95% choose to abort. In 2019, only 18 were born in the entire country. That's it's gut-wrenching. It's gut-wrenching to think about. 
In wealthy countries, it seems to be at once the best and worst time for Down syndrome. Better health care has more than doubled life expectancy. Better access to education means most children with Down syndrome will learn to read and write. Few people speak publicly about it wanting to eliminate Down syndrome, yet individual choices are adding up to something very close to that. What is this, what is this saying? It's saying that because people know that they're going to have a Down syndrome baby, they're, more, they're immensely more likely to terminate that pregnancy. Why? Well, because if human life only is human life, if it's productive for either me or for society, then we need to, quote, unquote, eliminate that. The Christian worldview would say, excuse me, you're eliminating an image bearer of God. You are eliminating a valuable human life. You're cutting up the check on the ground that's worth $100,000. This is saying that we have better access to health care and education now. Literally, kids with Down syndrome are living twice as long learning to read, learning to write, but yet when many mothers find out, they choose to terminate. There's, there's an interesting piece to this, too. It says, in the United States, which has no national health care system, no government mandate to offer prenatal screening, the best estimate for the termination rate after diagnosis of Down syndrome is 67%. It's in our country. But that number conceals stark differences within the country. One study found higher rates of termination in the West and Northeast and among mothers who are highly educated. Why would that be? Why would it be? You'd think it'd be the other way around, wouldn't you? You'd think that the mothers that are more educated would go, no, this life has value. The mothers that are more educated, is my theory, the mothers that are more educated are on career paths. They're on a career path, and they cannot imagine anything getting in the way of that career path. Do you know how much work it is to raise a child who will always be a child? It's an immense sacrifice. And if that sacrifice comes in the way of your view of yourself and your own value and your own productivity, then it, it's terminated. Okay. That's what happens when you don't believe in the Imago Dei. That's what happens. You, you don't see value in human life beyond what it's able to produce. And produce is based on the culture you live in. That's what Nazi Germany did, right? They, they said, based on their cultural norms, they said, this is what good human life is, and this is what bad human life is. And the way we're going to fix the world, we're, the way we're going to establish our utopian vision is by eliminating the people in it that are not the way they should be, which for them were Jews, right? This is where that leads. This is where that leads. As Christians, we value every human life. That's why Christians are fighting against abortion. That's why Christians largely have been the ones that have started orphanages, that have championed adoption champion foster care. So many because we see the value of a human life intrinsically, not because of anything they've done, but simply because they bear the image of God. It's so important. It's so important. When we don't believe in the image of God, we feel like we can change and screw with anything that we want. Gender, sexuality, eugenics, all of that is a failure to believe, a failure to believe that God creates life and then when he creates life, he does it intentionally in order to reflect him. Are you with me? Okay. As Christians, though, we need to see this. We need to see that humans reflect God's image. And we need to understand that because, you know, here's what happens a lot of times. We, we, we raise our kids, and we don't want them to um, be influenced by non-Christians. So we say, hey, you know, non-Christians um, are like this. And we paint some really stark caricature of a really worldly 
person with a needle in their arm, on the whatever. And, and the Christians are like that. And they say, okay, great. And then they go off to university and, and they have some professor who's very moral. And, and he goes home to his wife at night and, and he recycles his garbage and he's very smart and he's very intelligent and he's not a Christian. And then kids go, well, wait a minute. Were my parents lying to me? Why is this person such a good person? Okay. The Imago Dei answers that question. Human beings can reflect God's nature in immense ways, even when they're not Christians. Are you with me? Even when they're not Christians. We have to understand that human beings reflect God's nature, even in a fallen state. Now, even though the picture is crumpled and crinkled and faded and not as full as it could be, it still is ultimately reflecting God's nature. That means every human life is valuable. Okay? But here's the problem. Okay, here's the here's the 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 problem that we have here is that Genesis 1 doesn't tell us everything we need to know about what it is to image God. If being a human is imaging God, uh, and Genesis 1 tells us that, you being human is imaging God, then why do I not feel like I'm complete? Why do I not feel like I'm as human as I could be? Why do I feel like I could be more fully human? It's kind of like the Pinocchio story, you know? He, he wants to be a real boy, and he, he gets turned into a puppet that can walk and talk and do all the things boys do, but he knows there's still something missing. Okay, as a human, you, you were created to image God, but all of us know deep down intrinsically we understand that we are not imaging God as fully as we ought to be. And for that reason, we have an ache, a longing inside of us to image God more fully. Why is that? Because of Genesis 3. It's because at Genesis 3, the image bearer, which is Adam, which is man, okay, the image bearer is fallen and is not now at that point imaging God to the degree that he could or should. And this is where the gospel comes in. The problem is, is we're not as human as we could fully be. So what is it to be human? It's to image God, okay? But what is it to be fully human? That's the answer that the gospel actually answers. What is it to be fully human? What is it to be as human as it can possibly be? It's the same thing we all want, right? To be as human as we possibly can be. And the answer is we need a new imager. We need a new imager. And Christ becomes that ultimate image. Take a look at a couple passages here. Colossians 1, 15 through 19 says this. He, being Jesus, is the, what? Image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. The New Testament authors, they're all over this image idea. And, and when Paul writes that, he's thinking of Genesis chapter 1. He's thinking that just like Adam was created and just like we were created to image God, Jesus is the fuller image, the perfect image, the exact image. Or as Hebrews here says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He's the exact image. This is what Jesus was trying to get at with his disciples in John 14, 8. He says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why? Because Jesus is the image. He's the perfect, the full image of the Father. Philip says, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you... er, Sorry, Jesus says, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. 
But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And notice what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. What he's saying here is he's saying, if you want to image God more fully, then follow me. Become part of me. Because he would say, I am the perfect image of God. And in me, you become the perfect image of God. The restored, full, complete image of God. In union with Christ. Now, note this. This is a community thing. Okay, when it says that we are his body, that means collectively. So Jesus is saying, you want to image God more fully than Get in the church because it's through the diversity of the body of the church that we actually image God's full attributes. I don't image God perfectly. I'm a fallen imager. Jesus does. And the only way that I can image God fully and perfectly is within the church because the church in the totality of the body becomes the full picture, the full image of the Father. We image God fully by conforming to Christ's image couple passages, Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Why? To be conformed to the image of his son. This is Genesis 1 language, but it's a New Testament reality. Okay? Do you notice a theme here, by the way, if you've been coming a few Sundays in a row? Everything in Genesis 1 happens again in the Gospels. God creates a man. In Genesis, what does God do? He creates He's not creating Jesus, but he sends his son to be the new man. Okay? The spirit, of the, God was, the spirit of God was over the waters in Genesis 1. What happens at Pentecost? The spirit of God is over the new church. God creates Adam to image himself. What happens through Christ, the new Adam? He is imaging God again more fully. And what happens to us when we become part of Christ? We grow into the image of his son. Are you tracking with me? You're like, no. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. This is what sanctification is. As Christians, we become like Christ. We take on his image. Again, and have put on the new self, Colossians 3, 8, uh, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So what is the gospel? The gospel is that God has created another imager, Christ. And through the church who is united to Christ, we become part of that image. So what is it to be a truly human? It is to be in Christ. That's what it is to be truly human. Jesus has redeemed the picture of God the Father in every way. He became the perfect ruler. He became the perfect cultivator. He became the perfect... um, picture of the attributes of a human being. All of that is found ultimately in Christ. Okay, now so what? I want you to, I want you to get this. Here's the summation of everything I'm saying. If you haven't been tracking until now, here it is. I'm going to borrow my buddy Mike Robinson's words here. Imaging God is both a gift and a goal. It is both a gift and a goal. What I mean by that is that we need to see that the Imago Dei is something that every human has. It's a gift. Every human life is valuable. It's a gift. You have been given the gift of humanity, and the gift of humanity is that you image God. But that's not all that it is. It is also a goal. And it's a goal, and it, it, a goal. the goal ultimately is fulfilled in the person of Christ Jesus. 
It's something we pursue. So as a Christian, I don't just go, yay, I'm creating the image of God. I go, how do I image God more fully? How do I image God more completely? How do I image God more totally? And the answer is I become like Christ. That's the answer. Let me give you three implications and then we'll be done. Three implications of what it means for God's image to be a gift and a goal. One, don't be too negative about humanity. This is, this is something that sometimes in, uh, some of you know what I mean by this, in Reformed Christian circles, when we, we talk about the depravity of man, which is very true, okay, if God didn't limit the evil of man, it, it would be so bad you literally couldn't even, you couldn't even watch it. I mean, humans are capable of all kinds of evil. But having said that, sometimes we can overstate that. Humans actually are also capable of a lot of good. And if you're watching the news, the 24-hour news cycle every day, all you're going to notice is the bad things that people are doing, the evil things that humans are doing. It's been earth-shattering for me the last three weeks. I just haven't been watching the news. And I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just saying that the news makes it sound like everything is always bad all the time. Every human is always evil all the time. That's really not true. There is a lot of good things happening in the world. There's a lot of, even non-Christians are capable of a lot of good things. Why? Because God is graciously working through them. And I think we need to be careful sometimes of not overemphasizing the evil, overemphasizing the wickedness of man. Now, at the same time, flip that coin over. Don't be too positive about humanity either. What I mean by that is don't settle for the, the first part of the Imago Day. Don't settle for the fact that, like, yeah, I made in the image of God. This is awesome. God made this cool creation. I'm going to go explore it. I'm going to go, uh, you know, ring it out for all it's worth. Live a hedonistic life because humanity is beautiful. Yes, humanity is beautiful. Creation is beautiful. The world is beautiful. God made a beautiful world. But don't settle for the first part of the Imago Day. Look for the true humanity the true fulfillment of what God actually was doing here. Don't be so content with fallen humanity. See God's greater humanity through the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? That's the other side of that coin. And then lastly, lastly, be pro-life and pro-life. Okay? What I mean by that is that we as Christians, we need to both be about bringing justice and saving life, especially the unborn and those that are oppressed in this world, we need to be about that. But we also need to be about the gospel because the gospel is the true fix. Without bringing Jesus' perfect life into this world through the gospel, it doesn't change the social makeup of our culture. It doesn't. We need to be about both. We need to be about the gospel. We also need to be about fighting for the value of human life. Okay, now let me just say this. You guys don't understand how badly the people in your life need to hear this. I, I know that we hear this every week. I, I preach the gospel every week. And so it's kind of like, yeah, okay, okay, good job, Sam. Thanks. Okay, listen to me. The people around you are absolutely miserable because they don't understand how valuable they are. And they've been told that they're valuable based on their ability to believe in themselves. They've been told they're at the center of their own universe. They've been told that they're valuable if they can get out and prove that they're something, like Michelle Obama did. They've been told that. That's an empty message. What they need to be told is you are valuable because you bear God's image. And then what they need to be told is, 
But it doesn't end there. You can bear God's image more fully. In fact, that's what you long for. That's what you really want. What you really need is to be part of the new humanity, the more full image bearing of God through the person of Christ, through union with the person of Christ. That's true life. They need to hear that. They need to hear that. We live in a world that's broken, and they don't have answers. And I'm sorry, but, you know, whatever the guy from the BBC said earlier about the facts about human life, it's just total crap. It's, it doesn't hold water. It's hopeless. It's pointless. It's not logic. And that's what everyone around you believes. That's what they believe. They believe that they were a primate that walked a little taller, had a little bit of a bigger brain, learned how to communicate, and they're basically a social animal. That is the most depressing, satanic message anyone could ever believe. It's not true. Genesis 1 tells us that we are created in the image of a God who is a person, a person who loves us, a person who knows us, a person that created us for love, to love, to be part of community, to draw us into his eternal existence with him forever. Not a pointless abyss of nothingness through the evolutionary process. Yeah, you died so someone else can evolve. Joy. No. There's no hope in that. We have the hope. We have the gospel. We have the truth. Amen? I just want to remind you of that. Father, we thank you so much this morning that you have truth. God, that you have spoken truth. Father, we thank you so much for the realities of the word of the gospel. We thank you that we are not grown-up germs. We are not uh, evolved animals. God, that you created us with great purpose. You've made us distinct, Lord. We were the crown jewel of your creation. You created all of the cosmos. You created all of the world in order to create a habitat for us so that you could reflect your beauty and your glory in us. And God, we want to be restored to that purpose. We don't want to be the crumpled up, faded, folded picture on the ground. We want to be a more full, rich image of you, God, and the totality of your person, who you are, and the things that you do. And we know that the answer to that is Jesus Christ. So Lord, would you make that a reality for us, especially in these dark times where people are depressed, where people are struggling, they need hope, we have the answer to that. God, use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, God bless you guys. I'm going to cut you loose. Hope you guys enjoy your week.